0: Yeah, our Bible's out this morning. We're in Acts 3.19. Acts 3.19. Find your way to Acts chapter 3. It'll be in verse 19. It's kind of the central verse for our study. Last week, I started a study on repentance. This week, we're going to do part two. Lord willing, we'll be here for a while. So we just dig into this topic. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 19. I'm going to thank God for the word, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we thank you this morning for this time of worship, for being able to enter into your presence. We thank you, Lord God, for the production this weekend, for 44 souls that came into the kingdom. Uh, We're so thankful for that, Lord God. Amen. We pray, Lord God, that your spirit continue to move here, open up our hearts and our minds, and let the word get through our minds and into our hearts so that we can live out what we learned today, Lord God, on Monday. We ask that you would change us from the inside out, Lord, that we wouldn't be hearers only, but doers of the word, displaying the fact that the Bible is the blueprint for life and that Jesus is alive and he can make all the difference. Lord, let us be living testimonies to that truth. We prayed in Jesus' name and the church said, amen. amen. Acts 3, verse 19, one verse The central verse of our series here. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, how many would say that refreshing is something that all of us want? Anybody want to be refreshed? Come on, that sounds weak. That sounds like you need to be refreshed. Anybody want to be refreshed? Amen. Amen. Worship is something that refreshes us. There's been times where I've come in to to worship or to lead worship and been sick, Tony. And by the time I was done, I was healed. I felt great. Why? Because in his presence, that's when he does some incredible work in us. So worship is refreshing. But you know, the older you get when you wake up in the morning, you need to be refreshed. You ever just look in the mirror and go, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. You know I mean? You're hoping the shower. Your eyes are puffy. You can't see. You're walking. I get out of bed sometimes, uh, you know, in the morning now. If I had a rough day, I got the posture of a jumbo shrimp, you know, I'm <laughs> moving over. I'm like, Lord, straighten this all out. But we, we need refreshing in our physical man. But more than that, we need refreshing in our spiritual man. The spiritual man is the same situation. You know, there's times where we need refreshing. And look what it says here, that if we would repent and be converted, and we talked about that word repentance, we'll, we'll, we'll recap on that a little bit, but our sins would be blotted out, so there's forgiveness, and then times of refreshing would come. We can't have refreshing without repentance, Last session, we learned that repentance was at the heart of the gospel message. John the Baptist said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Peter said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance is at the core of the gospel message, and it always has been since the beginning. And we learned that Greek word used in the New Testament for repentance was the word metanoia. Metanoia. And metanoia means a change from former thoughts. So we used to think one way, but because we repented and came to Christ, now we think another way. How many would say, after you came to Jesus, that your whole mentality changed? Come on, like the things you used to think you, you should pursue and acquire and do, all of a sudden it's like, those are the last things, those are the last places we want to be, those are the last pursuits we want to pursue, Why? Because we've repented, metanoia, we've had a change of mind, it's a change of heart, a change of mind, and that's the whole point of repentance. It's not just being sorry, it's not just admitting we're wrong, it's actually making a change. How many know you could be around people, married people, if your spouse does something that's really just hurtful and they admit that they do it, but they don't change, that's that's not what you're looking for. Anyway, everybody got serious now. (laughs) We've got to change. Husbands have to change. Wives have to change. And so metanoia, a change from former thoughts, Repentance means turning away from sin and turning away to and turning towards God. So we turn away from something towards something. We turn away from sin and we turn towards God. We learn that there's no conversion without repentance. You can't be born again without repentance. You can't have a relationship with God without repentance. Acts 2:38, repent and be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's the biblical pattern repentance baptism in water identifying with his death burial and resurrection and then that repentance allows us to have the gift of the Holy Spirit we always want the refreshing we always want the Holy Spirit but we've got to embrace repentance we get it that people who don't know Jesus need to repent all of us needed to repent before we came to Christ amen amen and so we understand that, but as Christians, there seems to be a disconnect with the fact that we also need to repent even though we're saved. And you say, well, you know, why do we need to repent if we're saved? Because here's a, here's a news flash for everybody. We all still sin. Yes. Amen. Some people are looking at me. I don't know what you're talking about. Anybody have a sinless week this week? <laughs> me neither. <laughs> if you think you did, ask your spouse. They'll cool you in. But no, we all still sin, so we all still need to repent. Now, we understand why those outside of the kingdom need it, but we in the kingdom, we're born again. We love Jesus. We come to church. We, we read the word. We, you know, we got the Holy Spirit in us, but yet we still sin, so we still have to Repent. If repentance is not something you do as part of your Christianity, something's wrong and it needs to be incorporated into that because it's been there in the gospel since the beginning and it hasn't gone away, amen. This is not just an altar where sinners come to repent, it's where the saints come to repent too, amen. So. What would Christians need to repent of? The most biblically accurate way to answer that question is to look at what Jesus said to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Jesus came to the churches in the book of Revelation, and much like what our sister gave us a word this morning about being ready and allowing Jesus to, you know, get in every nook and cranny of our spirits and point out the places where we need to recalibrate, Jesus speaks to the churches. Now, I want you to understand, out of the seven churches, five of them were told to repent, and there were only two churches that were not told to repent. The church of Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. This were a church where the, the Christians were being martyred wholesale. And they weren't told to repent. They were good. Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, was exempt from repentance. But the other five were told to repent or else. How many, you know, when Jesus says or else, that's time to pay attention. Here's... What Jesus said to the churches, now he's the head of the church and the churches are his. We're going to see a description of him here in Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7. If you're taking notes, write that down. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Listen, Jesus speaking. To the angel of the church in Ephesus right? the one who holds the seven stars in his right hands. That's Jesus holding the churches. You know that song, he's got the whole world in his hands. Here's a picture of it. One who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, verse 2, I know your deeds and your labor and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil people. And you have put those who call themselves apostles to the test, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and you have endured on account of my name and have not become weary. But, verse 4, I have this against you, you have left your first love. Therefore, remember where you have fallen from and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But you have this that you hate the deed of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So a powerful uh, dissertation that Jesus gives here directly to the church of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was the first church in the church age. It was the church right after Christ was crucified. It's the early church. Ephesus is referred to as the apostles' church. Why? Because it had the apostles in it. These men who walked with Jesus, who saw him do miracles, who saw him you know, raise the dead and feed the multitudes and all of these amazing things, they saw him die on a cross and they saw him resurrected after his death on the cross. They were eyewitnesses to the gospel, yet somehow, someway, their love for Jesus grew cold. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a warning to us who didn't see it and didn't weren't first, you know, how much easier for us is it to get our love cold and to walk away from our first love? These guys were right in the thick of it. They knew Jesus. Yet he says, I have this against you. You have left your first love. In confronting the the church of Ephesus with this issue that he has with them, Jesus models for us a very productive template for bringing correction to others. Now, there's times where all of us have to correct others, we need to do it in humility, and we need to do it after the pattern that Jesus demonstrates here. What did he first do? He praised them. He said, I know your deeds. I know your labor, your perseverance. You don't tolerate evil. You've exposed false leadership. You persevere. You endure. You've not become weary. He praises them for all the things they are doing right. But then there's a verse 4, and he says, I have this against you. You left your first love, and, and he gives them a, a, a template to correct that. And in verse 6, again, he praises them. He says, but you do have this. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And so understand the, the template here is that when you correct someone, you praise them, you correct them, and then you praise them again. If you correct someone by just coming to them and unloading the correction in an accusatory way, you're going to make them defensive. Married people, pay attention here. Amen. You always do this, da 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 You didn't take out the garbage. That the, ah. Ding, ding. Let the fights begin. It's not the way you correct someone. That's not humility. That's not love. Praise, correct, praise. It's like a sandwich if that's what helps you. If you relate anything to food, Pastor Mike, I'll remember it. So Jesus models that for us here. Kind of just tuck that into your heart. Next time you have to correct someone. Bring correction to a worker, a spouse, uh, you know, whoever, your children. Understand the template that's laid out here, and you'll have a much better result. Uh, Verse 2 and 3, Jesus says, I know your deeds. And I love the fact that he says this. Why? Because isn't it wonderful to have someone acknowledge what you do? Just Pastor Mike was the only one excited. (laughs) Isn't it great when someone just says, hey, man, I, I noticed you did this, you did a great job. Anybody like to be encouraged? All right, three more people, praise God. So Jesus says, I know your deeds, your labor, your perseverance, you don't tolerate evil, all these good things, he's praising them. Truthfully, the church of Ephesus was doing a lot of things right. You know, they, they got it going on in a lot of ways here, and it's a good testimony. Uh, you know, don't be that person who overlooks all of what's good and all of what people are doing right and just be that nitpicky, critical person who points out the one thing that's wrong. You ever meet people like that? You could paint the whole room. It's beautiful, new colors, everything. They walk right in and you miss the spot. Don't, uh, let's be honest. Don't you want to just smudge their face in the paint? You know, we're going to go for the stippling effect now. We're going to just... I mean, people can be so nitpicky. You do 20 things right and immediately. I, I mean, people like that drive me nuts. They pick out the one thing that's wrong. And it, it's really, honestly, it's poor character. Yeah. You know, it certainly doesn't follow the template of Jesus. Oh, this looks good and the colors are great and this is good. But, you know, maybe we could touch up over here. Hello? So don't be that person who's critical and nitpicky but understand how correction works. And Jesus points out all the good things they did. He didn't overlook anything. He didn't just go right to criticizing them. You know, it's not comfortable for us to face our sins. It's not comfortable for us to face our shortcomings. Can we agree on that, that it's not a comfortable thing? But the truth is it's a profitable thing for us to do that. Jesus loves the people in Ephesus enough to say, hey, you know what? You're doing a lot of great stuff, but this one thing, I got an issue with this, and you need to correct it because it's serious. Now, we need to see God's call to repentance, not as nitpicky or being critical. Jesus is not doing that here with them. He's not being a fault finder. No, he's pointing out a spiritual cancer in their relationship with him that if not corrected will have serious consequences. He says, if you don't repent, your lampstand is going to be removed. And That's serious, amen. Yes. None of us like to think about that. We like the grace and we like the forgiveness and the second chances. But Jesus is just being real here. He's like, you guys need to correct this because it's going to hurt your relationship with me. And it's going to leave you unprepared for what I want to do in your life. So correction is needs to be looked at as constructive criticism. Constructive criticism uh, is very valuable if we can learn to accept it. Do you know some people are too proud to accept any criticism? I've seen people that when get criticized actually get violent. As a young man, I've been on work sites where, you know, a carpenter got called out for, you know, maybe some trim work that just looked like who didn't and ran and they just did not want to, you know, oh, well, there's putty, we'll fix it. You know, it's just no humility. There again, that's an unhealthy way for us to be. So. Constructive criticism, that call to repent, needs to be learned that we are able to receive it and accept it with humility. Here's a thought about constructive criticism. Quite often we spend more time justifying, excusing, or rationalizing our errors than we do trying to understand the benefit of criticism. Once we learn not to be defensive, we find that constructive criticism is actually a real compliment to us. The person offering the criticism is usually uncomfortable doing it, but is willing to endure that discomfort in order to help us. Think about that. We should consider and appreciate their criticism. Why? Because the person giving it was brave enough to risk their relationship with us and getting us getting angry at them, but cared more about us to, to take that risk and to give the criticism. When someone who loves you criticizes you, when someone who loves you tells you you need to change something, adjust something in your life, listen, you are wise to take that criticism. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend, amen, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Your enemies, oh, you're good, you're fine, you're great, you're perfect, everything's good, but someone who loves you is going to speak into your life and say, look, you got to correct this, it's, it's going to steal from you. And Jesus loved the church of Ephesus that much to point out the one issue they had. And he loves us enough to point out our issues so that we'll repent of them as well. In verse 4, Jesus comes right out and lays out the issue. Now, I love this about him. He's not cryptic. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't walk on egg sales, He doesn't do a little dance. He says, you left your first love. Now, how many realize that's going to sting a little bit? But he says it just as clear as day. When it comes to believers needing to repent, I believe this is the number one issue we face. Because look at the church at Ephesus. They were doing so many good things, so many God things, so many kingdom things, yet their love for the king had slipped and they became little workers in the kingdom instead of lovers of Jesus, amen? God didn't call us to be workers, to be robots, to be doers, to be slaves. No, he called us to have intimacy with him. If we lose our intimacy with Jesus and we're just busy doing kingdom stuff, then we're, we're missing it. So this idea of, you know, leaving our first love is a serious issue and it affects all of us. It's a snare we have to avoid keeping our love for Jesus as the number 1 priority of our lives can be a real challenge because guess what we live in a world full of distractions do you realize how many things out there can steal our attention and our energy and our and our, and our hearts away from the lord there's no shortage of things out there in this world that can distract us matthew 4:18 through 19 uh, describes the things that routinely resurp, usurp our love for Jesus Christ. Here they are. Look what Matthew 4:18 says. Now, these are the ones sown among thorns. This is Jesus giving the parable of the sower and the seed. And he says, th- these seeds, what? They're sown among thorns. They are the ones, listen, who hear the word, Verse 19, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. In that little dissertation Jesus gives there as he's given this parable, he lists three things that usurp our love for Christ the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and other things. Say other things. You know, we kind of get the first two, they're, they're pretty simplistic, the cares of the world, you know, and there's a lot of stuff to, that's on our plate as adults in the Western world here, amen? Yeah. Any, anybody have a full plate? Yeah. Anybody got nothing to do? I, got, I, got, I need help. No, we got a full plate, you know, to keep the refrigerator full, and the lights on, and oil in the tank, and the paycheck coming in, and the house in order, and your marriage intact, and your children blessed. There's all these things, and it's a it's a lot. And the cares of the world can get so overwhelming at times that we we just allow Jesus to slip away, and we're just busy trying to trying to hang in there and exist. I mean, do you do you see what's going on? In our country I mean the price of almost everything is doubled you know a lot of us can just afford it and we do without other things but there's some people who can't afford food now I mean that's overwhelming talk about the cares of the world how about the deceitfulness of riches? Well, we live in this, you know, mechanized industrial uh, consumer society that is constantly pushing us to want and to desire and to buy the next thing. We got to have a new this and a new that and a new phone and a new car and a new job and a new, and new, new, new. You know, things used to be made to last. Anybody remember that? I said in first service, my parents had one refrigerator my whole childhood, when we moved out, they got a new one with an ice maker. I was mad. <laughs> I was like, I've been going with these trays, trying to you know fight over the two cubes here, and now you got an ice maker. Yeah, why? Because that refrigerator lasted all those years. But now what? They make stuff to break in five years. They send the repairman over. He's like, eh. <laughs> it's broke. Yeah, I know it's broke. Can't fix it. Got to get a new one. Hundred bucks. Thanks. That guy. If there's any appliance repairman here, I apologize, but it's it's never good news. It's just never good news. And the deceitfulness of riches is we got to have bigger and better, and we got to have more, and we got to replace this, and you know, and all of a sudden we're caught in this rat race of acquiring things. And it robs our time and our energy and our focus. Some people spend so much time just researching products and looking at their Amazon cart and this and that. And it just, uh, you know, and, and, and the, it grabs a whole of our soul and it takes us away from the Lord. But, you know, those first two things we can understand and discern. But the truth is it's the other things that kind of creep up on us and get us. And you know what? There's no shortage of other things. If you know you don't have an issue with the cares of the world and you've got a balanced life and money's not a big deal to you and you have enough to get by and you're happy with what you have, then great. But the other things cover every other category that could ever steal us away from the Lord. And I want to say a few sobering things about other things. Number one, anything can become an other thing if we let it. I want to say that one more time. Anything can become an other thing if we let it. And and that's a problem for us. Why? Because we've got to be careful all the time. You know, we have to evaluate everything we take into our life and say, is this going to bring me closer to God or drag me away from him? And a lot of things have that very real ability. Now, I want to say the second thing about other things. Good things can become other things. And when they do, that's a real dangerous situation to be in. You know, an other thing is really just an idol. Let's call it what it is. And we can make an idol out of anything. We can make an idol out of a person, out of a relationship, out of a sport, a hobby, a possession, a pursuit. Quite easily, we can make another thing out of anything. But what happens when the other thing is a good thing? What happens when you make an idol out of something that's good? In 30 plus years of ministry, I've seen people who've made idols out of their spouse. And all of a sudden, they're in this love relationship, and it's they're more important to each other than Jesus is to them. We were laughing in first service because we were in Bible school, and there always used to be these people, Pastor Mike was there and Kim was there, and you know, we we would see these people in the cafeteria and they'd be staring into each other's eyes, holding hands. They'd just say, like, And we're like, we're trying to eat here. You know, this is a cafeteria. I mean, people would just like make fun of them. They were so bad. I can can see their faces now. And I've actually, there's nothing wrong with being in love. There's nothing wrong. What I'm saying is when you make that person more important to you than God, that's another thing. I've seen people make idols out of their children. An idol, it's everything's about the kid and everything's about them. And it's all every day, 24-7, and we ship them around and cart them around and they're in every activity. And we neglect ourselves and we neglect our spouse and we make an idol out of children. And Jesus gets pushed off into the back. Now a good thing has become an other thing And that's dangerous. Why? Because you can't stop loving your spouse. You can't stop loving your kids. But now you're forced to rebalance those relationships while maintaining Jesus as number one and everything else as a distant second. And that's tricky. It's tricky. So we've got to watch out for other things. When we make an idol out of something, uh, we've set ourselves up for failure. Why? Because Matthew 6 tells us this. Matthew 6 24 says no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and mammon the Bible is using mammon to represent money materialism basically you can't serve the world and God you've got to pick one or the other well you can't serve two masters in any environment you look in the Bible where they had, you know, where they had multiple spouses, you know, and they always loved the one and they always didn't, you know, they had, they, they, oh, I love this one, but this one, you know, and like you see that the problems that that caused in the Old Testament. Uh, thank God for one spouse. I can only serve one master today. <laughs> Kim says, that's right. and I, I have a list for you when we get home. <laughs> Amen. But, you know, this idea of serving Jesus and something else, and look, the throne of our heart is a one-seater. It's only got place for one thing. It's not a love seat, amen? It either has Jesus as Lord or something else in his place, an other thing. We've got to be careful with these other things. Jesus spells out a three-part remedy for us if we've lost our first love, and he does it in verse 5. And I want to read that to you again as we close this message down. Verse five says, therefore, here's Jesus's remedy. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do your deeds you did at first or else I am coming and I will remove you. So, I mean, there's the, or else let's not go there now. Let's look at the three-part remedy. Here's what Jesus to do, told us to do if we lost our first love, if an other thing has taken his place. First of all, he says, remember, remember from where you have fallen. The implication there is you were at one spiritual place and then somehow you fell from it. This is what the Bible means about backsliding. You know, we've fallen. He says, remember from where you've fallen. Why is that? Because he wants you to remember what it was like when you were right with him and he was number one in your life. We've got to remember that. You say, well, well, why is that? Because the truth is, if we will remember what it was like when we were right with God and when we were, you know, in Christ and he was number one in our lives, if we'll think back to the times where we were head over heels in love for Jesus, we're going to remember that those were the best times in our life. Amen. Come on, church. Those were the best times. You know... When we're in the word and we're in church and we're in prayer and God's moving in our life and things are happening, amen, and we're right with Jesus and we're not in sin and nothing's between us and him, those are the best times in our lives. When we're head over heels in love with Jesus, now if we've gotten lukewarm or we've cooled off or we've stepped back from him, then things get progressively worse. So he says, remember. Why? Because the nostalgia of those memories will cause us to run back to him amen. Then he says, repent. So he gets to it. Our series is about repentance. Jesus is telling this church here uh, to repent. And the issue is that they left their first love. Now, you know, why would they have to repent? Come on, they're doing so many good things, Jesus. They're busy. They're kingdom people. They don't tolerate evil. You know, they're they're straight shooters. And why why you got to pick out this one thing? There again, it's a serious thing. It's not a little thing. They have to repent because of this. Making idols and then worshiping them in place of God is a grievous sin. And we can do that. We can make an idol out of something and worship it in place of God. These guys had actually, maybe they were worshiping ministry. They were, they were involved in church structure. Maybe they, you know, they were involved in their calling, but somehow their love for Jesus cooled off. You know, we can get caught up in so many things and just, you know, and make an idol out of it. We look at, you know, idolatry in the Old Testament. We think, those guys were, you know, what a bunch of knuckleheads. They, like, take a block of wood and carve it or a stone, and they make a statue, and then they bow down and worship it. What a bunch of knuckleheads. But you know what? We're the same knuckleheads because we do the same things. We, we make things, and then we worship them. You know, musicians here, every musician knows you got to be careful with your, with your instruments, You could begin to worship them, and in the world, they they use them for worship and gain worship from them. There's hobbies and sports and things, but I I love to hunt. I could hunt every day. I could go in the woods and climb up a tree, turn off my phone, leave me alone. (laughs) There are times where I hunted every day of the bow season. I mean, I could have, and that could become an idol. That we just, you know, well, this is the thing I do, and I put my time and my money and my effort into it, and Jesus is somewhere in the back seat. So anything can be another thing, and once we've made an idol out of something, and now we worship it in place of the Lord, we need to repent. It's a a violation of the first commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's a violation of the second commandment. You shall make no graven image for yourself to worship. And so it requires repentance because it's sin. And so Jesus says, remember and run back to me. Uh, repent of the idol and get back to me and make me number one. And number three, he says to redo your first works. And I love, I love this here. The remember part we get, the, the, the repent part we get, but then he says, and do the deeds you did at first. And that's important because when we were first converted and came to Jesus, we behaved a certain way. It was kind of like the honeymoon phase. Anybody remember the honeymoon phase? Amen. And you're just, you know, you're in love with Jesus and all you want is him and you're in church every time the door's open and you love everybody and, you know, and you're just happy and you're just excited. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and look at us now. <laughs> It gets on you, right? Yes. <laughs> Some people, while I was saying that, were like, <laughs> but we got to do our first works over. What does that mean? That means starting again with a spiritual reset, a reset. Yeah, how many remember the etcher sketch? Yeah. After you made your little crooked flight of stairs, remember that? <laughs> you could do what when it was messed up and you're like, you just, <laughs> that's what repentance is for us. The young people are like, is that on Xbox? No, it wasn't on Xbox. But we need a reset. We need a do-over. We, we need a refreshing, amen? And so uh, th- this redoing of our first works is a spiritual reset for us getting our hearts right through repentance, re-consecrating ourselves to God as his, you know, his, his servant, uh, beginning to pray and read the Bible again and attend church and serve and give and be involved in ministry. Uh, even some people get baptized again. You know, oftentimes we give altar calls for people who, you know, don't know Jesus and we want them to accept the Lord and, and, and call them to repentance. But at the same time, You know, the altar is open for the saved as well, to rededicate. You know, we don't hear that very much, to rededicate. I used to hear altar calls when I was young, you know, if if you want to repent and meet Jesus or you want to rededicate your life to him. Some of us need a redo. We need to rededicate ourselves to the Lord. Why? Because we've drifted away. We still love Jesus. We still believe. But you know what? We've allowed him to be number two, number three, number four when he needs to be number one getting our hearts right with him, praying again, reading the word again, attending church again, not just sporadically once in a while, but being committed. I think of the hundreds of people that were involved in our Easter production here. You know, the time and the energy that we spent pouring into the production and rehearsals and, you know, sometimes withering hours of the night and just all of this stuff. But to produce 44 souls that come into the kingdom is an awesome thing, amen, and it's worth it. But as much as, you know, and I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to be rough or kick anybody, but some people did so much and some people do nothing. And that's got to change. Could you imagine what God could do if we all did our part? And some of us need to recommit ourselves, reset ourselves, make ourselves available for the things of the kingdom again. So remember, repent and redo. I'm going to ask the musicians to come this morning. And the way the Holy Spirit Told me to end this, this message here in the series is to open up the altar here today, and we're going to sing a song about Jesus still being our first love. And I want to encourage you today to come to the altar and just, if you want Him to be number one, and somehow, some way, you feel like you've slipped away or you've grown cold or you're just overwhelmed. The altar is open today, you know what, and I'm going to be the first one to come to the altar because I want everything in my life that draws me away from him, I want it out. I want to be filled with the things of God, and I invite you to come and to worship him and to just confess before him, repent if necessary, but this altar is open for us to come back to our first love. Thank you Jesus We we'll return to you Lord God You're, my.
1: You're still my first oh, Blessed Lord Jesus thank you Lord God You're still my only one You're still my First love, yes, Lord. You're You're still my only one. You're still my first love, yes, Jesus. You're still my only one. You're still my first love.
0: You're still my only one, Father. I pray this morning, Lord God, for each of us that have responded, Lord, that you would grant us the gift of repentance. God, we can't change ourselves. We we can't start new patterns that last. We can't change our own hearts, but you can, Lord God. And so, Father, do a miracle for each of us. God, allow us to return. Show us kindness today. Father, that we would come back to you and push aside every distraction. That you would take away the desire for other things that have pulled us away from you, God. And Father, that you would grant us change, Lord God. Change us from the inside out. Let us be hungry and thirsty for the things of God. Father, strip away those desires for other things for sin that grabs hold of us so easily that we give ourselves over to and change us, Lord God. We ask that you would be first once again in Jesus' name. Still
1: my first love You're still my only You're still my first love. You're still my only one. One more time. You're still my first love. You're still my only one. still my first love. Yes, Jesus. You're still my
0: only one. Hallelujah. Come on, let's give him a hand clap of praise today. We bless you, Lord. you are work in us.
1: Amen. Amen.